0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, the book of Romans, chapter 9. I'm going to keep reminding you that even though we are moving today from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 9, Paul was certainly not thinking in terms of chapters. The chapters were put there over a millennia after Paul's day as an honest attempt to merely break up the Bible into bite-sized chunks so we could digest it a little bit easier. Chapters and verses give us a way to communicate to one another more precisely which passages in the Holy Scriptures we're referring to. Chapters and verses are tools Nothing more. Thus keep in mind that when we open chapter 9 in a few moments, that Paul is not completely altering his previous line of thought. The subject is not changing, the scene is not changing, Paul is not ending one message to begin another one chapter 9 is not only a continuation of chapter 8 in a very real and literal sense, but chapter 9 also uh, re-examines some of the nuances of his thoughts from even earlier, what we would call chapters of Romans. So to open Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to continue along the lines of defending Israel's Election as God's chosen people and he's going to return to the theme of the advantages that Israel enjoys over Gentiles something which he spoke about back in Romans chapter 3 <coughs> there he said to open the chapter then what advantage has the Jew what's the value of being circumcised much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar. Even so, since Israel's election as God's people is a critical underlying issue for the letter to the Romans, this brief statement about the problem of Israel's lack of faithfulness to God needs some more explanation where does Israel's lack of faithfulness leave them In relation to their covenants with God and thus their status before Him, and especially as concerns the gospel, since Paul says that the gospel is an Old Testament promise. Therefore, we should take the opening of Romans chapter 3, that I just read to you, as the background for the opening verses of Romans chapter 9. That is, according to Paul, God gave and continues to give Israel a favored status above all other nations. However, Israel has admittedly failed in their God-given purpose, despite all their advantages, and the majority of Israel has become unfaithful to God, at least unfaithful as Paul measures it. Thus, with all of Paul's talk about Gentiles being able to participate in Israel's Messiah, the logical question that Jews especially, but also Gentiles, might ask is, why, if God is faithful, would He suddenly include some outsiders, Gentiles, and exclude some insiders? Jews in his covenants with Israel? Why would he do that? Might this mean that God has abandoned his old people, Israel, and replaced them with his new people, Gentile believers in Christ? Or to use modern Christianese, has the church replaced Israel as God's chosen? Now unfortunately, a major portion of the institutional church answers that question with a resounding yes. And as we have read in Acts, now in Romans, Paul repeatedly answers that question with a no, or more literally, heaven forbid. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1411. 1411. Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth. As one who belongs to the Messiah, I do not lie. And also bearing witness is my conscience, governed by the Holy Spirit, My grief is so great, the pain of my heart is so constant that I could wish myself actually under God's curse separated from Messiah if it would help my brothers my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel they were made God's children the Shekinah, God's glory has been with them the covenants are theirs I'm going to say that again Whose are the covenants? Theirs. The covenants are theirs. Likewise, the giving of the Torah, the temple service and the promises, the patriarchs are theirs. And from them, as far as his physical descent is concerned, came the Messiah who is overall. all. Praised be Adonai forever. Amen. But the present condition of Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed. For not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel. Indeed, not all the descendants are seed of Abraham. Rather, what is to be called your seed will be in Isaac. that is Isaac. In other words, it is not the physical children who are children of God, but the children the promise refers to who are considered seed. For this is what the promise said. At the time set: I will come and Sarah will have a son. And even more to the point is the case of Rivka, Rebecca. For her children, for both her children were conceived into a, in a single act with Isaac, our father, and before they were born, before they had done anything at all, either good or bad, so that God's plan might remain a matter of his sovereign choice, not dependent on what they did, but on God who does the calling, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. This accords with where it is written, Yaakov, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, Are we to say it's unjust for God to do this? Heaven forbid. For to Moses he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have pity on whom I pity. Thus it doesn't depend on human desires or efforts, but on God who has mercy. For the Tanakh, the Old Testament, says to Pharaoh, It is for this very reason that I raised you up, So that in connection with you, I might demonstrate my power. So that my name might be known throughout the world. So then he has mercy on whom he wants. He hardens whom he wants. But you'll say to me, Well, then why does he still find fault with us? I mean, after all, who resists his will? Who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Will what, what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me this way? Or has the potter no right to make from a given lump of clay this pot for honorable use and that one for dishonorable? Now, what if God, even though he was quite willing to demonstrate his anger and make known his power, patiently put up with people who deserve punishment? And we're ripe for destruction. What if he did this in order to make known the riches of his glory to those who are the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? That is to us whom he called not only from among the Jews but also from among the Gentiles because indeed, indeed as it says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people. Her who was not loved, I'll call loved. And in the very place where they were told, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. But Yeshayahu, Isaiah, referring to Israel, cries out, Even if the number of people in Israel is as large as the number of grains of sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For Adonai will fulfill his word on the earth with certainty, without delay. Also, as Isaiah said earlier, if Adonai Sevaot had not left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. So what are we to say? This. The Gentiles, even though they weren't striving for righteousness, have obtained righteousness. But it is a righteousness grounded in trusting. However, Israel, even though they kept pursuing a Torah that offers righteousness, righteousness did not reach what the Torah offers. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness as being grounded in trusting. As if it were grounded in doing legalistic works they stumbled over the stone that makes people stumble. As the Tanakh puts it, look, I'm laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip them up, but he who rests his trust on it will not be humiliated. When Paul begins by saying that he is speaking the truth, it is more of an an expression than an important piece of information that he wants to add. I mean, after all, his readers would have expected Paul to have already been telling the truth. It is an expression of special emphasis on what he's about to say. It's not unlike the expression, behold. Is also a biblical expression of very special emphasis. Now, what he's about to say is also sort of a pause in the action in order to interject a statement to make sure that anything he has said to this point is not misconstrued. It's very similar to Yeshua's pause in the action during his Sermon on the Mount. And then his interjection of that special statement about the continuing validity of the law of Moses, which of course we find in Matthew five, seventeen through nineteen. Now Paul uses a, a kind of judicial motif to draw attention to the importance, to the sincerity of what he's about to express by invoking the commandment that thou shalt not lie. He frames himself as a witness in a trial. And the number one duty of a witness is to tell the truth. In fact, there were major penalties for not being truthful. But all trials must have the testimony of how many witnesses? Two witnesses. To verify the truth. So the second witness Paul personifies as his own conscience under Holy Spirit control. Therefore, now that the bona fides of the two witnesses have been established, Paul goes on to give his testimony. And I want to pause to to frame Paul's concern to make himself as clear as possible Concerning a very challenging subject that is so full of mystery. And he puts it this way. If God gave the Jews a forever covenant, and through this forever covenant brought a Messiah into the world, whose job was to deliver the Jewish people from the eternal death penalty that their own sinning brought about, then what does God do with the Jewish people when they become unfaithful to Him? Does He throw them back into the pool of common humanity and pluck out a new people for Himself? Because that should not only be terribly concerning to the Jews, but also to the new Gentile believers in Yeshua who have been made a very similar promise. That is, Messiah's sacrifice on the cross is said to be sufficient to save them, to save us, from eternal death, forever forever. And yet, simple observation says they, we, are going to stumble and fall sometimes. And we're going to continue to sin occasionally. So, does this mean that God could just as easily throw those new Gentile believers back into the pool of common humanity just like He supposedly did to the Jews and start all over, yet again. You see, believers, this is the problem with the terrible and ignorant doctrine that the Jews are a stiff-necked and disobedient people who are at one time God's forever chosen people, but the Lord grew tired of their sinning, and He canceled His covenants, and He revoked the promises and to our good fortune he turned instead to millions of Gentiles who came to believe in Yeshua as Savior but if God would do that to the Jewish people by what rationale would he not do the same thing to Gentile Christians just how assured then of our position of eternal security before him ought we to be if He is a God who promises and then reneges at will? Can we truly rely on God's promises that His actions on our behalf through Jesus Christ are forever when He made a similar promise to Israel but then took it back because they continue to sin? So my mindset as a Gentile believer must be that I hope and pray to the high heavens that God did not revoke His promise to Israel. Because if He did, then you and I are at the mercy of an unethical God who makes promises and takes them back at His option. The good news is God did not cancel His covenants. He did not revoke His promises to Israel. He's always faithful to His word. Always. It is merely some anti-Jewish, Gentile church leaders who have told the big lie loud enough and often enough that it's been believed. But it is also billions of naive and disinterested Christians over the past 2,000 years who have never thought to ask themselves the simple questions about God's character that I've just set before you. Paul is, of course, unafraid to confront these questions head-on. Now, not as much by Christian scholars, but certainly more so by Christian pastors and educators, the book of Romans is regularly characterized as Paul's criticism against his Jewish brethren and his justification for welcoming then potential Gentile believers. But such a notion is destroyed time and time again by merely believing Paul and taking him at his word rather than applying heaping helpings of allegory to his statements. What Paul says beginning in verse 2, continuing through verse 5, is such a powerful testimony against Christian anti Semitism and replacement theology, it's hard to overstate it. Here, Paul once again identifies Jews as his dear flesh and blood brethren, not as former brethren or even as his opponents. Appealing to the Messiah as the guarantor of truth, Paul says in all sincerity that if somehow giving up his own personal salvation and instead being cursed by God, cut off from his identity in and relationship with Christ, if this would bring his Jewish brothers who reject Yeshua into a state of righteousness before God, he'd gladly do it. Does this sound like a man who has turned his back on his Hebraic heritage and Jewish people and instead virtually become identified as a Gentile? See, Paul's statement of grief, devotion, identification towards his fellow Jews echoes back to another Hebrew who after witnessing a great apostasy by His people offered the same personal sacrifice on their behalf back in Exodus 32 verses 31 through 33 Moshe went back to Adonai and said please, these people have committed a terrible sin they have made themselves a god out of gold now if you will just forgive their sin but if you won't then I beg you blot me out of your book which you have written and Adonai answered Moshe those who have sinned against me are the ones I will blot out of my book nevertheless Paul of course couldn't take his people's sin as his responsibility and suffer the consequences for it any more than could Moses but he above most others recognized the eternal danger his people were in while they themselves were just oblivious to it So Paul was willing to suffer whatever slings and arrows from his own people that he might have to endure for their sake. But once more notice, although he was Christ's designated apostle to the Gentiles, that hardly meant that the Gentiles were the only people Paul evangelized or cared about. He regularly dealt directly with the Jewish people. However, because he was assigned to go forth into the Gentile world to evangelize then the Jews he encountered were obviously Diaspora Jews who were quite different in attitude and in customs than the Holy Land Jews like James and Peter others of the apostles like they were and the people that they dealt with. It was a mixed audience that Paul dealt with, so he had to speak to them in that context. Now starting in verse 4 is a list of advantages and favor that God has shown to Israel. First, the people of Israel were made God's children. This once again opens up the issue of election. So Paul begins his list by declaring Israel's election as God's own people, his children. And now remember, a child of God, sometimes being synonymous with a son of God, means that this child's father is Jehovah, God of Israel. And if one is a child, what can you expect from your father? Inheritance. Notice that they were made as God's children. This means they were not God's natural-born children. They were adopted. And adopted means they were chosen out of a bigger group. So in the negative, all the other people were not chosen. So Paul once again confirms using Jewish Cultural terminology: the concept of election. Israel was the specially chosen by God from all other peoples on earth—a great honor indeed. Well, the next advantage for Israel is that God's Shekinah, His glory, has been with them. Now we must grasp that in the context of defining the substance of God that the Shekinah is one of God's attributes. Now in rather standard Trinity doctrine terminology, the Shekinah is one of the persons of God. Now although there is no single universally agreed to Trinity doctrine, they all say that there are three persons of God and only three. Now I won't take the time to go deeply into it, I don't, but I don't find the Bible supporting that notion. I certainly subscribe to the concept of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God as legitimate attributes or persons or elements or components or whatever inadequate term we might choose that together make up the Godhead. However, the Bible is all too clear that the Shekinah speaks as God. The Shekinah bears God's authority, as does another and different manifestation of God called the Angel of the Lord. It is the custom in Christianity, however, to simply roll all these attributes of the Shekinah and the angel of the Lord into the person of the Son. There's absolutely no biblical hint of such a thing. However, if one is going to unflinchingly uphold the man-made doctrine of the Trinity in its most rigid definition that only allows three persons or three attributes of God to exist, then what choice does a theologian have but to roll all other name manifestations of God into one or the other of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If not, then of course we wind up with more than three. Now to remind you, the Shekinah took the form of the fire cloud that led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years it is also said that God's Shekinah is what filled the temple when it was completed by Solomon and ordained into service there is no record of the Shekinah having been with any other people than Israel it was the sign of Israel's election as God's children it served to lead Israel to confirm God's ongoing presence with them Well the next advantage the Jews enjoy and Paul lists is that the covenants are theirs this is the one that got to grab our attention the most, it's why I took the unusual step of stopping in the uh, middle of scripture reading to repeat it folks, God only made covenants with the Hebrews, nobody else The covenants are theirs. And the covenants, while meaning all the covenants, that mostly points towards Abraham's and Moses' covenant from from Paul's perspective. Even the so called New Covenant of Jeremiah 31, that is commonly said to have established the church, did no such thing. It too was a purely Hebrew covenant. Because a Gentile covenant with the God of Israel does not, has never existed. I realize that may sound like heresy to much of Christianity, so let me prove my point. Jeremiah 31, 30-32 Here the days are coming since Adonai when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they for their part violated my covenant even though I for my part was a husband to them says Adonai for this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days says Adonai I'll put my Torah within them I will write it on their hearts I will be their God they will be my people Any questions? If you can stick Gentile in there somewhere, go ahead. I don't see it. Who did God say He would make this new covenant with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Anybody else? No. Second of all, after Israel has broken... The earlier covenant God had with Israel, made when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, who did God say he was going to make this new covenant with that Jeremiah speaks about? The house of Israel. Anybody else mentioned? No? And third, upon whom will the effect of this new covenant be? It will be that the new covenant will be written on their hearts. They will be God's people. Who are they? Israel. Anybody else? No. Paul has waxed eloquently in the book of Romans that it is the covenant of Abraham, a Hebrew covenant, that establishes the promises for future seed of Abraham and that it is the seed of Abraham who will be the inheritors of God's kingdom so believing Gentiles if you trust Christ you are seed of Abraham you are an inheritor of God's kingdom that's the promise what specific group of people held that promise in the form of a covenant given to them by God? The Hebrews. So, how did Gentiles get into a position to be seed of Abraham? We were grafted in to the Hebrew covenants by our trust in Messiah Yeshua. Paul's going to discuss that at length in Romans chapter 11. That is, if we trust in the perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ we will be included in the promises in terms of the covenants of Abraham and Moses even though we are not physical Hebrews. The next advantage is the Jews' possession of the Law of Moses which Paul calls the giving of the Torah another covenant with the Hebrews it is the Torah and nothing else that defines sin according to the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 4 the law of Moses was given to Israel at Mount Sinai to God's elect after God had redeemed them from Egypt by means of the ten plagues According to Yeshua in Matthew chapter 5, all who follow him are to obey the law of Moses. And this is because the law of Moses is only for the already redeemed. The law is not a means, not a means of redemption. The law doesn't redeem you. Are you a Gentile following Yeshua? that obey his command to obey the law of Moses. Yeshua says it's your duty. He says your status in the kingdom of God is going to be determined by how well or how poorly you obeyed the law. Now Gentile believers, we indeed have a covenant relationship with God. But the covenants aren't ours. They were given to, they belong to Israel. Israel. That's why we are called grafted in. We can only be grafted into something that already exists. It must be something that is alive and well. It does no good to be grafted into a dead stump. because a graft gets its nourishment from the roots of the tree it's been grafted into and since the stump is strictly Israel's stump another advantage for Israel Paul next lists the temple services what's so important about the temple services for Israel it represents the true worship of the only true God the temple services included the altar sacrifices that atoned for Israel's sins the temple services included the daily burnt offering that honored the God of Israel the temple sacrificial services were what the sacrifice of Yeshua was patterned after the temple was the only place on earth where God put his holy name The temple services were given only to the Hebrews through the Hebrew tribe of Levi that would be God's authorized priests. The temple services were to be where the people gathered to observe several of God's especially holy appointed times and the temple services were where the law was to be taught to the people of Israel. Well, next on Paul's list are the pa- patriarchs of Israel who belong to Israel. Abraham is the first person to be called a Hebrew in the Bible. In Genesis fourteen thirteen, someone who had escaped came and told Avram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the uh, Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Abner, all of them allies of Avram. Hebrews are defined as those people who are part of the line of covenant promises made to God, uh, made by God to Abraham. That's a Hebrew. Isaac was the next person to be called Hebrew. After him, his son Jacob. These three are the biblical patriarchs. They're all Hebrews, as apart from Gentiles. But even more Even more important, Paul finalizes his list of advantages for the Jews by stating that it is from the lineage of the Hebrew patriarchs that Yeshua the Messiah came. Yeshua was not a generic human being. He was not the universal man. He was specifically a Jew, just as the ancient prophecy said the Messiah must be. Jesus Christ was not a Gentile. Paul has set the record straight now. He said this is the truth. He's made it clear that while a way indeed has been made, for Gentiles to join to the covenants that the Hebrews have enjoyed with God, all the advantages, all the privileges as God's elect still belongs to the Hebrews, the Jews. Case closed. Well, now that Paul has balanced the ledger so that nobody thinks he's thrown the Jews under the bus, when it comes to holding their place in redemption history and he has emphatically shown that Israel continues in their special position as God's elect he throws out one of the most difficult statements that Christianity I think has ever had to deal with he says this in verse 6 but the present condition of Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed for not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel Oh, good luck with that one. (laughs) By the present condition of Israel, he is referring to the fact that the bulk of Jews have refused to accept Yeshua as their Messiah. But, says Paul, by no means does that indicate that what God has ordained for Israel has failed? Let's stop here for a second. If you ask almost any Christian if God's word can ever fail, I think I can safely say that all Christians, with maybe but the rarest exceptions, would say, well, of course not. God's word can never fail. And yet when those same Christians are asked if the law of Moses is still relevant and if not why not they would first say that it is no longer relevant and second is it had to be replaced because it was failed. The covenant failed and it had to be replaced with a much better new covenant. Is that not true? Is that not what you hear? The covenant of Moses was and is the Word of God. Any disputes about that? We can't have it both ways. Either God's Word never fails, or sometimes it does. If it never fails, then the covenant of Moses did not fail. It remains alive and well. Paul says... It didn't fail! (laughs) And that explains why it might appear to some on the surface as having failed. Paul is referring again back to what he had to say in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness heaven forbid God would be true even if everybody was a liar as we talked about earlier Paul is well aware that some Jews and Gentiles could question Paul's doctrines about Gentile inclusion into the faith because for them it seems like in order for Paul's theology to work God would have to be unethical in his actions by not fulfilling his promises to his covenant people. But Paul insists that it is not a conflict to say that on the one hand Israel has failed God, but on the other hand even so, God has remained steadfast in his faithfulness to Israel. It's not a two-way street. It would seem that this violates the foundational principle of a covenant. That is, if one party violates the covenant, then the covenant can be terminated. But even more, if not every Israelite, not every Israelite, has been redeemed by the gospel of the Christ that Paul preaches, then how can that not be construed as a failure of the gospel? how is is that not a failure of the word of God that promises to redeem Israel? Now part of the reason that this is even coming up in the scriptures is this. Judaism in Paul's day, and to this day for the most part, saw redemption quite differently than Christianity sees it. See, Judaism saw redemption, saw salvation, as a national matter. Christianity sees redemption as an individual matter. Judaism believed that God dealt with the Jews as a collective of people, as a group, when it came to redemption. Christianity believes that God deals with people on a one-by-one, case-by-case basis and what nation we belong to has no bearing on the redemption process. And in a sense, both are right and both are wrong (laughs) because God deals with humanity on two levels. One regarding the issue of personal sin and this personal accountability and personal salvation and the second level on the basis of his wrath being poured out upon nations for their collective rebellion against God all members of a nation can suffer calamity for the actions of a nation's governmental leaders since the leaders represent the nation that ought to scare you So as an answer to this problem regarding Israel's failures Paul says for not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel that's why some translations will say for not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel See, Christians have stumbled over this passage since Romans was first included as part of our Bible here is what Paul is doing He's making a play on words. Okay. Recall that Jacob, the founder of the tribes of Israel, was given a personal name change by God. Jacob became known as Israel, right? It became his name. But a very long time later, long time later, Israel also became the formal name of the nation of Hebrews. So in this verse, the first use of the word Israel is referring to Jacob the person, the founder of the twelve tribes. The second use of the word Israel is referring to Israel nationally, the name of the nation the name of the nation of Israel, even then only in a certain sense. So a better translation that begins to to help us kind of sort out this verse is, for not everyone from Jacob is truly part of Israel. That's the sense of it. Trust me, Paul really has not helped this situation very much. This must have caused great confusion among most who read this letter. But what he has actually done is to describe Israel as consisting of two levels. He is saying that essentially there is an Israel within an Israel. There is a true Israel within a nation of descendants of Jacob. Paul now goes on to explain who this true Israel is. Now, in order to explain his confounding statement, Paul reconnects his argument to Abraham and to his seed as he discussed back in chapter 4. He uses Abraham as a historical illustration of what he's getting at when he says that not all from Israel are truly part of Israel and he does this by saying not all descendants of Abraham are seed of Abraham rather those who can be called seed must come through Isaac now let's review this Abraham's first child a son was called Ishmael that was his first son Ishmael Ishmael was the child of Abraham's wife's servant girl, Hagar. But God rebuked Abraham for thinking that Ishmael would be the heir to the covenant that God has made with Abraham because God had told him already, Sarah, your wife, she's going to provide you with an heir. Abraham didn't believe God because Sarah was far past childbearing age but in time Sarah did get pregnant and have a child Isaac Sarah quickly grew jealous now of Hagar and her son and ordered her to leave the clan and take Ishmael with her Abraham was devastated and because he thought of Ishmael as his beloved firstborn But the Lord told Abraham it would be Isaac who is to be considered Abraham's firstborn and he would be the heir to the covenant. He'd inherit the covenant. And so it was right for Ishmael to be banished. Ishmael went on to found the Arab tribes. Now the gist of the matter is that it was God's will that Isaac was considered to be the Hebrew, while Ishmael was not considered to be Hebrew, even though they had the same biological father. Thus, as Paul points out, while Ishmael and Isaac can both claim legitimate blood relationship to Abraham, both can legitimately call him father, only one can be considered seed of Abraham. Thus says Paul, as it concerns the promises contained in the Abrahamic covenant, it is not that simply being a physical descendant, a flesh and blood descendant of Abraham that makes one a seed of Abraham. It is only that particular group of flesh and blood descendants of Abraham who also come down through his son Isaac who could be considered seed of Abraham. So after drawing this illustration of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael to help explain how only some of Israel can be considered as true Israel Paul takes it a step further. Now he uses the illustration of Isaac And his wife, Rivka, Rebecca. And in this illustration, Isaac fathered a set of twin boys with Rivka. You remember the story? So here we have not only a case of the same father and mother, both boys are the product of the same pregnancy. The two boys shared every possible common biological ancestry yet god was going to divide elect and separate them one of them would be elected to the line of promise of abraham's covenant and thus be called a hebrew the other twin would not he would be considered an outsider a gentile so how did god choose Even more, when did God choose? Paul points out that the how certainly couldn't have been by merit or that one was sinful and the other was not sinful because the decision as to who would be elected to the line of promise, which one of the twins would be the Hebrew was made in the womb before either were born before they even had an opportunity to be good or bad God had elected the second twin to come out of the birth canal Jacob as the inheritor of the covenant promises but even more the first one to be born Esau would serve his younger twin perhaps the most important point being made by Paul but there are others we'll get to Is that God is completely sovereign in the most absolute possible sense? That is, his decisions are completely independent from what human beings think or do. God does not make his choices according to human social conventions, he does not make his choices according to human philosophies of fairness or human governmental standards of right and wrong. By human social convention, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. That boy had every right to inheritance. By human social convention, Esau, even as a twin, was the firstborn of Isaac. He had every right to that inheritance. But by human philosophy of fairness, just simple fairness. How could God possibly judge Jacob as the righteous one, Esau as the hated one, when they were still in the womb? So while Paul tells us through his historical reminders of the story of the patriarch's birth, that God can do anything He wants to in His sovereign will, that still leaves us with no firm answer yet to the riddle of why God would judge only some of Israel as truly Israel and the remainder as not. And we'll address that subject next time.